Need a Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace, and with me is my very, very talented friend who often lays down some knowledge, Mixtress DC Gina. Hey, Louise, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Surviving this weather. Ugh. Yeah, it's I mean, a little nippy. I'm kind of yeah. done with this winter thing, aren't you? Yeah, I'm finished. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready. Ready for hotter days. Exactly. Where are you coming from? So we're on Capitol Hill today at Buffalo and Bergen. So I'm, I'm looking, you know, at the dome a little bit. It's pretty nice. It's nice here. Good. Good. It's chilly, Good. Good. but it's nice. Nice view at least, huh? Yes. So speaking of laying down some knowledge, I'd like to start with a brief walk through the life of Sarah Breedlove, um, whose name may not necessarily ring a bell right off the bat, but that's okay, because before we, at the end, I'm sure you're going to know exactly what the hell I'm talking about, which isn't always often. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Sarah was born December 23rd in 1847 to recently freed slaves, Owen, and I believe we would say her name is uh, Minerva. That's a very old name, and I'm not sure, but I hope I didn't butcher it too bad. Anyway, Sarah was unfortunately orphaned at the age of seven. She was married by 14, widowed by 20. Wow. And if that wasn't enough, she suffered a scalp disorder, and that caused her to lose her hair. And ironically, this challenge led her to formulate her own hair pomade, starting to sound familiar and it changed her life and the lives of so many others why Gina you ask (laughs) I do ask I want to know because Sarah went on to build a hair product hair product empire and uh, it became the Madam CJ Walker company which was a recent film Um, But her, but this is real life her initiative and ingenuity and tenacity eventually led her to becoming, get this, the first American woman, or one of the first anyway, American women to become self-made millionaires. Now we're talking. I know. (laughs) Now I got your attention. Hold on. You you always had my attention. I was cutting, doesn't matter. 100% good for, that's what I want to hear. I always love a good story about a woman taking the reins. And what's really wonderful about her is that she not only obviously became wealthy and built a company, you know, herself, she carried the, she brought others up with her. She created the Walker agents and it was countless women that she employed and trained. And the really wonderful ripple effect to that is that they became economically independent. And by doing so, their children then could go on to be educated, they could buy homes, they obviously all of the social benefits um, of, of women becoming economically independent came through. Um, Later in life, she became politically charged. She founded uh, philanthropies. This is all stuff we should all do. She's so inspiring. Um, She funded education scholarships and homes for the elderly. So she never forgot where she came from and to make sure that she spread her wealth literally and figuratively. Um, And she just made it. She was a positive force that changed her community as well as the world, I'd like to think. That's amazing. I know. She's still inspirational this, this many years later. I mean, she was born in yeah. 1947. Um, so she d- kind of is a reminder that um, we all can uh, do better. And we all should do better. We should so, all watch the movie to remember, too. Absolutely. That was an amazing movie. Um, so that is the end of my little history lesson, Gina. That's all I I've like got. It. Do you? Good. Because... I- 
because we've got um, a whole lot more, I'm, I'm sure. So much more history today. So I'm going to hand it over to the true historian um, who can really school us. Um, please welcome today's designated drinker. She's the director of Alexandria Black History Museum, Audrey P. Davis. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Hi, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it. Great, welcome. great. Did I get at least most of the facts right? It sounds like it. I mean, I, um, I, I did not get a chance to see the movie, but I remember the story of uh, Madam C.J. Walker, and we have hosted events where we have uh, talked about her story and had authors in to talk about her story. And I've done some work with the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and her home, I think it's called Villa Lawaro, is, yep. I think it's in yeah. upstate New York. and That's uh, what I read. Yeah, and the owners who had it were actually, uh, at one point, they were... It was protected by the trust, but they were looking for someone, I think, to be to come in and be sort of a live-in caretaker. And I fantasized about having that, being able to do that. And <laughs> have that beautiful home and the grounds at my disposal. And I would love to be a caretaker for that for that lovely mansion. So, so that maybe Gina and I need to start making some phone calls then. <laughs> <laughs> a new Airbnb or something. That's <laughs> Related to life history, it'll be great. Yeah, we can have cocktails in the afternoon. Gina can make us morning cocktails. There's there are breakfast cocktails. Gina has lectures. them. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. This team. sounds this sounds like a perfect gig for us. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, are you ready, Gina? Yeah. You gonna go make us morning cocktails? I'm sorry. Yeah, there we go. So, you have such an amazing history yourself. Um, Audrey, your interesting family history, your wealth of knowledge of history, your job brings history to life. I I really don't know exactly where to begin. So can you please share with us and our listeners where your journey into history began? I think it began through my parents and my grandparents uh, have family roots uh, in Virginia, but I'm a DC native, uh, love DC. And it's, uh, I've really enjoyed growing up in DC, had a very, very happy childhood. But I think that it comes from not only my grandfather, who was a historian, he taught at uh, Howard for many years. He actually was the first black to get his PhD in literature uh, at Columbia University in the 1920s. And he lived in amazing, he was an authority on the Harlem Renaissance and the writings of the Harlem Renaissance. And he lived in Harlem during that time. And so he knew many of the great figures. And so I loved hearing about his stories. And then I have other cousins who are in the arts, whether through screenwriting, I have a cousin, Charlie Davis, who's a movie director. He did the movie uh, Drumline a few years ago that a lot of people oh, yeah. uh, remember. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, he's done some other films since then. And then my cousin, Anthony, and my cousin, Chilani, uh, have worked on, uh, he's, a mu- he's a musician, and he just won the Pulitzer uh, last year for music for his opera about the Central Park Five. But well, you just are a family of underachievers. <laughs> I know, it makes me feel like it's just, I know, it's like, okay, well, I love my job, but they're they're just on a scale above. But uh, they all collaborate. I mean, my my cousin Anthony, my cousin Tulani, who's a writer, uh, and she used to write for The Village Voice for many years. Uh, she writes screenplays. She's won a Grammy. They've worked on operas together uh, about, Mal- about Malcolm X that was 
um, was at Lincoln Center. So it's a, a great family for collaboration and for discussion about the arts. And uh, so I think it comes from there, just being curious and interested and having two parents who were teachers for many years. Uh, you went to every historic site on vacation and every every place, and they instilled a love of museums and places and history and uh, so much so that I would often just create these little museum worlds in my room. That's and hilarious. And charge them admission to come and, and visit and to come <laughs> to come see. And I'd create and I'd even change the exhibition. So I think it was in my blood that I That's I wanted great. to do this because I, I love collecting. I probably collect too much, like I guess most of us, but I love... Borderline uh, hoarder, but we won't tell. Borderline hoarder, definitely <laughs> borderline. I mean, hoarders could really do a couple of episodes <laughs> in my house, but uh, but I, they, the, they're things that make me happy. Like for me, I collect uh, I collect not only black memorabilia, but I also collect antique toys. And uh, oh, I think it tells you a lot about uh, our play. For me as an African-American, it tells me a lot about my place in history and the changes, and it informs the work that I do and how the images have changed over time. And I think it's fascinating. I think it's uh, really, and especially now since the, everything that happened last May with George Floyd and you're seeing all the companies changing like uh, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's, uh, Lando Lakes, and changing these images that have been on their packaging for years. And I think the stories behind some of those images and also uh, Rastus, who was the cream of wheat chef. And you think about these people who posed for these, who, who were, you know, they were based on real living people uh, that were never paid for their image that was used wow. or, an, or an adaptation of an image, or if they represented the product at a fair or something, they weren't really paid adequately for, for what they did. And I just find that that's a really interesting story and one you don't want to forget. And oh, also, yeah, and people just don't know the history or that like Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, for a lot of African-Americans, they don't buy those products because long ago, not, not that long ago, but calling an older African-American uncle or, um, or aunt was a pejorative. I mean, if by someone white calling them that because it was not addressing them with a courtesy title, not giving oh, them a rank in society. I mean, it's one it, thing it's with your family, but... Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I lived in Hawaii and how culture is so very different because there, when you call somebody, it's auntie or uncle, um, it's actually, a, it's a, uh, it's a sign of affection. And you, if you didn't use it, it's disrespectful. Like if my friend's children didn't call me auntie, it was disrespectful. I just think it's really interesting how culture um, and where we are in the United States, I think, it, it just goes to prove that we are very complex and our journeys are so very different and learning more and being exposed to more helps us all as humans. Right. And it's a, it's a learning process because like you're saying that when you're in Hawaii and, and with your family and friends, that's, that's a sign of respect and, and yeah. in African-American culture too. But I do remember my dad, we were, I was out with him running errands when I was a child and he was speaking to someone about insurance and the person addressed him as his by his first name, Arthur. And he got up and he walked out and I couldn't understand what had happened. And he said, I'm doing business with this person. He should have called me Mr. Davis. And wow. this is a sign that if he's not respecting me now, he may not respect my wishes later. Yeah. So it was like one of those lessons that you learn. But it, it's amazing how things change over time. And I, I love that about history, that we're always changing and hopefully yeah. always going for the better. 
We hope. We hope we're always, yeah. hopefully, at least if we all, some of us aim in the right direction, others will follow, hopefully. <laughs> I think, yeah, I like to think that more of us are on the side of, more on the side of right than, than and yeah. that. Hopefully, right will win out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll knock on wood on that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, I know your like history has been a part of your your upbringing, but you started at the Smithsonian, right? It was like kind of your high school playground, basically. It was. It was great. My mother, being a, a teacher, was always on the lookout for things in the summer. And also because she was a teacher and around kids all day, she was like, you are getting out of the house in the summer. You <laughs> will be doing something so that I could, I could have. We were the only, I think, I think we, I don't think we we're the other mother and daughter where the mother's a teacher that we'd compete on snow day. She was so happy when I had to go in and she got to stay home. But uh, it was a, it was a great thing. She found the Smithsonian internship that paid $500 and wow. it, was uh, I mean, and that was like every week or every two weeks, and which was a lot of money uh, yeah. in the seventies for a high school kid. Yeah, and it was before nine eleven, and it was at Natural History, and we were training to be guides, but we had free run of the museum. I mean, the kids in that core, we could pop into anybody's office, anybody's lab, and ask questions, and it was just terrific. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. You, uh, I think, yeah, I think you told me that you uh, did. You, you actually had the stage as well in your puppet performance. <laughs> yes, yes, we were required to do performances in the theater. Uh, we were uh, so it was interesting in the theater that they had at a Natural History, and so we had to create a puppet show. And they gave us a few weeks to come up with it. We had to create puppets. We got some training on that, but we had to create the puppets. We had to create the stage. We had to create a script and do all the staging. And it was a great opportunity for high school students to, and we took turns. So you learn to be in front of an audience and uh, you learn to work with kids that might be screaming in the audience and not happy that they were there. And it, it was wonderful. I mean, I think it was a great bonding experience for us in the I'm summer sure. and it was a job I look forward to. That's awesome. Gina, you taking notes on what to do with the girls? She has two do- young daughters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, I think it's beautiful. I, I, I love. That's how a lot of the interactive programs came about in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. Oh yeah. Of how what the museums you experience now are like. They took away the idea that you walked in and stared at things and you more mm-hmm. engaged. So, like Audrey, I found that so fascinating that you worked there in the seventies because a lot of these exhibits that my kids enjoy now were based on just that having creative minds come come forward having younger high school students or younger college grads really figure out how to engage the next 30 years of a generation oh yeah yeah absolutely i think like we go to so many we go to museums all the time and um like native america i love the native american museum the most right now is smithsonian oh yeah because it's the kids can play with everything you know Mm -hmm. not obviously not now yeah but they know but they real but they engage and they like know it they go in they're like oh this is you know the canoe this is how you get this this is the fish that the people ate this is the different um you know tribes this is uh, that is incredible my kids are six and seven and they just know Uh, it because of play so i feel like if there's a way as as our generations are pushing forward you know to change and make things better teaching our kids better behaviors and more history as they're younger only makes a brighter future. 
I, I think agree. your mother did great. Oh, thanks, thanks. I will definitely let her know because, uh, yeah, I uh, I think it's great. And it's interesting. I was just on a call with a lot of my peers in the museum field, and we have this group, and we call it the Advanced Museum Professionals, although some of us call it Ancient Museum Professionals. <laughs> but, um, but we've talked about the trends we're seeing, and we were just informally discussing, like, what are museums going to be after COVID? Because it's a whole new world and what will families feel comfortable with? And uh, because we enjoy doing the, the hands-on stuff and having kids really experience things and will people be afraid to do that? And how do we manage in our spaces now? And, you know, what kinds of, pro I mean, cause we're all, I mean, virtual is great, but we're all missing the in-person program. And there's nothing like an audience to when you're showing something on a tour or letting them be able to touch something you can't, you just you can't do it um you know on a call and so just for us looking at how we want to um for this group that i'm working with the virginia association of museums sort of look at you know in the next year how COVID has truly impacted us with our visitors and what they're seeing and what they're feeling and what they want to see and how we can we can do that and how we can make it safe for people i think it'll be interesting the next i think the world at large um, in the next couple of years to see how our behaviors change um, and will we slowly go back to our norm. Um, <clears throat> obviously, things leave a lasting impression as well. They should, um, but it'll be interesting to see how, how things begin to change. And, and, and I, I don't know that going back is the right way. It is, it is moving forward with new learnings, hopefully, and how we behave. It'll be interesting to see. You've got quite the challenge ahead of you because, um, Gina, I don't know if you know this, but um, this lovely lady put people in morgue drawers, live people. <laughs> Yes, I did. It's one of my first jobs at the Smithsonian uh, when I was in uh, when I was uh, in just out of grad school. I worked for the Experimental Gallery at the Smithsonian in the Old Arts and Industries Building, and we had this great show called Etiquette of the Undercast that actually was pretty controversial. We had a senator even complain about this, and which even made the numbers grow for this show. And what it was was an interactive maze for adults, and you you came in and it was like you were facing a wall of morgue drawers. My job was to pull the drawer out and to put you in it and give you a headset, give you a cassette player and headphones. And then I'd push you in the drawer. You turned on the cassette player and you would hear your funeral going on and you would hear dirt falling on the top of your casket. And then the, uh, after hearing your service for a few seconds, then you would be told to roll off of the bench. And then you went through this maze where you went from being a middle class citizen to being homeless and sleeping on a park bench. So you ended the, uh, you actually ended the maze by lying on a park bench and then rolling under the back of it to get out of the maze. And it was a really interesting show. Uh, totally, very interesting lines around the block for it. And, uh, I, and I love that kind of interactive, not only museum experience, but theater experience because it was produced, and I can't remember the name, by a theater company out in California that came in to do the show and they did these kind of immersive experiences so it was pretty that's cool that's amazing <laughs> I, Gina, would, I you, think, would you would you have gotten in the morgue drawer yes but i also think you should bring that back because i think people literally forget how close you are every day to death mm -hmm. and how and how one job away you are from the same experience that people are feeling for homelessness mm -hmm. it was and exactly I, like that yeah and yeah. i feel like that's a that's so strong 
I feel like somebody that was privileged may feel a little bit more connected to what other people feel every day. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, I think if what, they had what the, year the was that? This would have been in the 90s, so probably around 90, 91. I really missed a lot of stuff going to kindergarten, you know? I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, not kindergarten. I was in, I was almost in middle school. I was in middle school. Uh, I was like, Gina, who are you lying to? No, I was in middle school. Sorry. I thought you said 81, and then my brain just said 91. I'm like, I was in middle school. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it, no. it was great. But I, I think, Gina, you bring up a good point because that show just sort of stripped away stuff from you as you went through that 20, 25 minute experience. So, you know, first you lose your job, then you lose this. And then where do you go and how do you feed your kids? And it just made you think. I mean, it just really made you. And I think with the technology ha they have today, the kind of experience they could give you as opposed to what we had in the 90s would really, really be um, a powerful experience. It was powerful then. And I think it'll be really powerful now. Yeah, you know, we had to um, talk about technology with coming through COVID. Um, I'm sure we all remember the short-lived Google Glass, the glasses oh. with the internet. It was short-lived, and it didn't. It didn't obviously take off. Well, they're bringing back that technology because, it, and obviously, it's what ten five years later. So we've got you know newer technology to support it. Um, on because of the new, it, talking about change based on where we are today, um, bring that technology back so that we can be more interactive, be closer, have it. You know, again, we're living through this world of Zoom as we record this podcast via Zoom and experience the challenges technology presents. Um, but yeah, they're bringing them back, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays a role in your world. Um, That's Audrey. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I only had one experience with the Google Glass. Well, I had a doctor who who wore them, and he he would let you know the minute he came in. Oh, this is what I I'm wearing, and he would tell you if you know if he was recording anything. But yeah, it's an interesting interesting. Um, new technology, well, old technology coming back in a new way. Yeah, old, so. it's so old, it's five years old. <laughs> I know, yeah, I guess in the tech world, that's ancient, yeah. So. It is. <laughs> but it could provide us with a lot more opportunities. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the museum on that note about virtual. How are you guys, uh, how is it that someone can um, interact with the museum, obviously, in these days of COVID? Yeah, well, the Black History Museum in Alexandria is one of eight sites, part of the Office of Historic Alexandria. And unfortunately, right now, all of our museums are closed due to COVID, but we do hope uh, to open again soon. But also right now, while we're closed, the city is helping to refresh a lot of our sites and putting in safety measures. So we'll be even safer when we open again. But we're doing, we're moving everything virtually. We have a lot of virtual lectures that are going on. Uh, you can always check out our website at historicalexandria.gov. We do story time for the Black History Museum on our YouTube channel, and we have African American stories for kids. The first, um, they're loaded the first Saturday of every month, but they remain on the channel. Uh, we have lectures for adults, and we're even going to be trying to do our first virtual concert uh, later in the month. So we'll see Ooh. how that works out uh, with some period uh, 19th century African-American music um, by the uh, Rebels uh, Jubilee Voices, which is a group based in, in the DMV. So we're looking oh. forward to that. Yeah, I'll make sure we uh, don't worry. We're going to put the, all of this information in our uh, in our show notes. 
on, oh, on great. designateddrinker.show um, so that our listeners can get in contact and direct links out to all of the amazing things you're doing because, uh, man, we could use a little bit of that right now, huh? I know. Good news is always. <laughs> always. Exactly. Good news, good programming, um, bringing people together. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, that's what we really miss. I mean, I think one of the things I actually really miss the most with museums are when we have our opening receptions because not only are you combining history or sometimes art but you're combining great food and a lot of people and it's a party and cocktails sometimes so it's a it's a win all the way around see gina audrey is our kind of peeps (laughs) Uh, it's the cocktails that get the donations no one Mm -hmm. ever said this steak skewer is really going to make me write my check It's it's a few gin and tonics and then they're like all right, let me just write it because <laughs> that's what that's what breaks down the walls. You Absolutely. open up those you open up those wallets with a little gin <laughs> gin and tonic. <laughs> you relax with good company, good food, good drink. Yes, nice. <laughs> um, nice. You're open to supporting. Yes, I mean, sir, I think so. I, I think Audrey, so. I Audrey, think. I have this idea, and you tell me if this is crazy, but I feel like it's a good idea. As I do all my cocktail history and everything, I come across. Um, uh, bartender, black, like uh, black bartenders, like all the time in different history, and uh, you know what they invented and created, or where they worked, and like what their, um, you know, what their time frame was and everything. But what what I have never seen, and what I and what and what exists, is a subculture of cocktails that, for some reason, they just don't ever make mainstream unless it's it's brought through some sort of music or. Or, you know, now in these days, rap music or, you know, hip hop or, you know, whatever that genre is. But there is a, there is a in, incredibly elegant era of cocktails that were enjoyed with big, being not only cognac based and all that, but gin based and Geneva and bowls and all of that. And they touch on it sometimes in like, um, in references in different movies like uh, Ray was a good one where they brought up the bowls and she's always drinking the Geneva and the time frame. But like, I would love, and I don't know in your world, who is a historian of that, of that, or where we could find more information because that curation for me, that for me is such a huge, such a huge, um, it could be such a big monumental push in the bartending world to bring that forward. Oh, and yeah. I really fe- and I feel like, you know, it's just such a smart. There was it's such a they were just ingen they were genius and they need to they need to be um, brought forward, Celebrated. especially the women, yeah. especially the women that ran so many speakeasies, ran so many bar rooms. You know, no one talks about that. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, no, that, that's. I mean, I would totally support you in that program. If you ever want to partner on something like that, I would, I, mean, I would love to do something like that. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it'd be cool to just like start thumbing through, like, you know, sometimes you've read so many things and you don't realize that you've read a cocktail recipe or you've read through what somebody may have served at, you know, a party in New York during the time of, um, or the time when they were raising money to uh, free slaves or run, um, you know, the angel network to, to free slaves, right? And there was a whole subculture of this and I want people to know more about it. And, I, and I've empowered some of my bartenders that work for me to like, go, go re- research whatever you can find, bid on the books that you think that they're gonna, the information might be in there 
from that time period. I, I want to like bring this light to. Yeah, I want to bring it. I want to bring the light to it because like I feel like, you know, Paris never experienced the same amount of, you know, you know, Paris was so free and oh, yeah. and and it was such a beautiful time. And like they always celebrated everybody. They didn't, you know, if you made a great drink. The Parisians were like, let's drink it in this country. <laughs> we just don't celebrate that. And I feel like we need to push that and like tell people about it. Well, you know, Gina, I think for uh, and I was thinking about this the other day. For and, and Luis, too, for a future show, there are filmmakers in Richmond, uh, Lance and Hannah Ayers, I think I'm pronouncing the last name right, and you can find this film online through their company. Uh, they did a film, it's like a short 20-minute film called The Hailstorm, and it's about this 19th century African-American chef, but he created this amazing mint julep, and apparently it became known throughout all of Richmond and people, they were just saying it knocked you out. It was incredibly amazing. And so they, they were trying to recreate it. And they said it was like, just, it, it, yeah, it was just called the hailstorm because it was like something like no other. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, over time we forget about these people and we lose these stories. And, uh, you know, you should take a look at the films. I think you can find it on their website. It's really fascinating. And I, I am interested in that because food was, for African-Americans in so many ways was our entree into places, whether you were a great chef and you were, you know, even when you were enslaved, I mean, that was something that was prized by, unfortunately, your owners, but it was a way to survive. And you think about um, all of the African-American women who made money through, uh, through catering and through making meals or for serving in families. And so I think the food history is incredibly amazing. And you've got people out there like Michael Twitty who are looking at African-American food history. And there's a great book out called The Jemima Code about um, African-American, uh, a woman who's collected a lot of um, African-American cookbooks. I mean, there's so many interesting interesting books that are around and people, like you're thinking, are getting more interested in it, but there's not a huge base, I think, of knowledge on the cocktail side of it. Uh, so I think that's something that should be explored uh, because there is an interesting history to it. Absolutely. You, you know, once we're done with this, I will be immediately finding the jewel up on the hailstorm. So I'm like, because in my mind, I just went through August and I'm like, we got plenty of hail here. So yeah. we should be doing something to honor this gentleman. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, let, yeah. and let's find out where he met his he may remain and go to his grave and then serve the drink to him. Yeah, I you mean, know what I mean? Yeah. Or add a little spirit. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I'm into that. So, like, let's do it. All right. All right. <laughs> On that note, yes, at least have a drink. Okay. Do it. So, a little birdie named Louise told me, just kidding, uh, that you like um, Bloody Marys. I do. And I love Bloody Marys. And we've done a couple of Bloody Marys on the show, and my whole business is really based on bagels and Bloody Marys um, at Buffalo and Bergen. So what I wanted to do is something a little bit different that will be coming up, especially in this area in the springtime, that would be um, fun to do as strawberries come into season. Strawberries are just as acidic and sweet as tomatoes, so you can sub them out. So what we're going to make, or what we, what we need in the base, is you take... Um, and all the recipes will be on designateddrinker.show so you don't have to like rush and write it down if you're listening. So you're gonna take about a pint of strawberries and you're gonna take the tops off. If you wanna keep the tops on, you can. And then we're gonna add an eighth of a teaspoon of horseradish 
an eighth of a teaspoon of black pepper, an eighth of a teaspoon of um, a, a salt, a teaspoon of Worcestershire, and then this is when it becomes your Bloody Mary. How hot do you want it? Do you want oh. one? Do you want like one jalapeno in there? Are you a habanero person? Do you like, you know, you don't really want it too hot at all and you're just gonna put a splash of Tabasco in it. It becomes very personal at this point. I like it spicy. spicy. Yeah, so we're gonna, we'll do a little bit spicy. That's how I did it. So I did one whole um, jalapeno in there as well. So I took this and blended it and then I added a little bit of cilantro at the end. So you're gonna blend all the ingredients and then add your cilantro. And if you don't like cilantro, Basil is a very easy way to like um, substitute. And you then are left with this incredible looking oh, wow. uh, mix. And when you open it up, it almost smells like salsa, right? So if you added a little bit of onion to this and maybe some uh, garlic, you could have a strawberry salsa at the same time when you're serving it and you could serve tequila with it if you wanted to to make like an afternoon. But very in cool. this case, we're gonna take the two things that you, that you love. We're gonna use gin. And we're gonna use the Bloody Mary mix to make a Bloody Mary. So I'm going to just scroll this down so in case you wanna watch. Oh yeah. So um, the one thing about Bloody Mary is that I find to be amazing, right? So we made the base and again, we're gonna give you the recipe so you don't have to, nobody has to rush or worry. You're gonna put it in your blender and you're gonna blend it. This is not one of the recipes that you can unfortunately muddle. You have to blend because the strawberries are not, are not friendly to the muddle. They really, unless you muddle for a very long time, um, it's better just to use a blender, food processor, or maybe like, you know, um, you know, anything that uh, shaker, whatever. So what we did for a garnish, which I thought was really cute, was to take the strawberry, and I'll just do one to show everybody. So take one, and you're gonna hull out. Um, you're gonna hull out the top, which means that you're basically gonna take the green part off, and you're gonna make a little cap, and then you're gonna take a few pieces of cilantro leaves without the stems, and you're gonna stick them back in there so this becomes all edible. So when you go to place the garnish on your drink, and we're gonna do this ahead of time because Bloody Marys, the most amazing thing about Bloody Marys is that you should garnish them appropriately. Right. So we're gonna take our, a metal straw, and you can use a regular straw, and you're just gonna basically poke it through one time, and the reason why we put the, the leaf there is so we make a nice little hole. And now we'll get a fresh leaf. Let me just do this really quickly. So you're gonna put it through, make another hole. And you make another hole. Basically you're making it so that, so that the strawberries will sit on the um, straw as part of the garnish for your drink. Because again, bloody that's part of why Bloody Marys are so popular, right? They look amazing. People mm -hmm. put everything on them now from, you know, shrimp, uh, I don't know, I put a bagel on top of mine, we call it the locks and loaded. Uh, you know, you could do anything that you want to do. Bacon is very popular. And, but once you make the drink, you have to make sure your garnish is ready to go because then you have no more time. So, that we have this amazing. cool straw with cilantro and everything on there. Oh, and it's wow. really fun for your cocktail. So if you have friends coming over, you can just do a skewer of these and leave them, um, especially, you know, I think that like now we live in a time where if you have a special friend that you're willing to spend time with during COVID, you should treat them to an amazing cocktail. So we're gonna take two ounces of gin, cause this is gonna be a strawberry snapper. And then we're gonna add four ounces of our 
cocktail of our um, Bloody Mary strawberry mix. And then we're gonna fill it with ice and we're gonna give it a roll. Okay. So you don't shake Bloody Mary so much as you give them a roll and they, it means that, the, that it goes back and forth from the glass to the shaker tin. So we're gonna put it in. And now we're gonna take our glass that we're gonna serve it in. Let me just move this up so you can see this better. And you're gonna transfer the Bloody Mary and the ice back and forth just a few times. Whoops, you're gonna make a mess because I put too much ice. Oh, please. Even I make a mistake. All right, put it in one more time. And I'm gonna get a towel. Can I have a towel? And then you should do it in a restaurant because then when you make a mess, then someone will help you out. <laughs> and then when you ask for a towel, someone shows up and they're like, oh, let me get you a towel. But so the color looks amazing on that too. Well, yeah, it's, it's a fun little drink. So I left a little bit of room. I'm gonna put the strawberries in there. And you're gonna take your strawberry and you're gonna stick it in. So it sticks off the top like that. And now you have to ask yourself, do I love lemon? Of course we love lemon, right? So right. there's already lemon juice. I'm sorry, in the recipe you'll see there's a little bit of lemon juice in there. So we'll put the lemon on top of there so it has like this little pretty look. And then you have to ask yourself again, um, do I eat bacon? I don't know, I don't know. Do I like pork? I don't know. Do I like turkey bacon? Sure. We said that it's a really good idea. So if you want to make it a little bit more fun, you can add two slices of you know, warmed bacon, turkey bacon, uh, the, veg, um, the, the new vegetarian, like the vegan bacon works just as nicely. And if you want to, just for the, for the sake of a photo, top it off with just a little bit more mix. And that is it. That is your strawberry Bloody Mary. Louise, let me see yours. Oh, wow. Look, Louise, That's you did amazing. so good. You put the jalapeno on it. I love it. Look, and a oh, cucumber. Oh, a cucumber. <laughs> Oh, I so love cute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, since I used Hendrix gin, I thought adding a cucumber would be apropos. Because why? Because I hang out with people with Gina who tell me to do things like that. Yeah, I love that. That so, is great. So we will, we will one day meet you in person and make this for you, or I would happily make you some Bloody Mary mix and then come pick it up. Well, I, it looks fantastic, and that that's just up my alley. And I'm I'm sorry I'm at work and I can't, but I can toast you with my cup of tea. And when yes. I go home this evening, I will be making that. Oh no, Gina, that really looks amazing. That just Thanks. yeah. And Louise, yours looks fantastic too. I know she got it really good. Yeah, that's the art director in me. She's not going to need me on the show anymore. She's going to be like, oh, okay, I got this. No, mine just look pretty. I'm not saying they taste as good as Gina's. <laughs> when I saw the ingredients, I thought, oh, this is just amazing. This is uh, all the things I love. I was telling somebody who, um, I was telling people, I, who was I talking to? And they, 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 they see themselves as connoisseurs of cocktails. And I was saying that we were going to, Gina was making this strawberry Bloody Mary recipe because she sent it ahead of time to make sure I have all the ingredients. To make it on the show, and I was like, I can't wait to try that. And because I have a slight allergy to tomatoes, even though I love Bloody Marys, oh. I I can't I can drink one and and, and I'll be okay. Um, so this gives me the, the everything that I want out of it, and it's delicious. I can't wait to share this with you, Audrey. It's really really lovely. And you know what I love about the cilantro in the strawberry, although it's very pretty. 
I love the essence that it gives me when I go, bring the drink to my nose. It's wonderful. I love cilantro. I think it, it's really, really good. And I like the idea that Gina had about you could also craft it into a salsa a bit so you can have the combination. Yeah. Which, so make, I like the yeah. Super, yeah. Some salty chips along with your <laughs> strawberry, because your strawberry um, salsa and Bloody Mary. Yeah. Sure. So, so you need a little would, sodium. On a I deck would, outside with uh, socially distanced with your friends. This is. Let's do I it. Would, I would I would basically take um, the, the recipe and split it. You know what? I'll give the recipe for it because you're going to want to not put the horseradish in there and you're going to add garlic and onion to the salsa and then you will and then you will take um, half of it. You'll divide it. We could do that. I'll make that recipe. Okay. I'll, just, I'll, I'll divide Great. it. Was that, is that good? Yeah. That's yeah. Good. That's so then we'll do a yeah. strawberry salsa mm-hmm. and then say you could use a margarita. I'm totally into it. Oh, yes. like it's, it was Audrey inspired salsa. Oh, thank like you. It. Thank you. I would look it, forward. I'd love to get that recipe. It's because she's so spicy. <laughs> I know. I love it. All right. So, so to get um, this recipe, the how to's, the tricks, the ticks, easy for me to say, and especially all the links um, so that you can uh, find out what Audrey's doing at the museums here in Alexandria. Where are they going to go, Gina? You're going to go to designateddrinker.show. Is that designateddrinker.show? It was. It was designateddrinker.show, and I will give you all of my recipes. Wonderful. So I'll yeah. see so, you there. <laughs> yep. This recipe, as long as, along with all of our other recipes, will be there. And like I said, all the links to get to Audrey and all the things that are happening at the museum. So we've done our barkeeping. Um, so, Audrey... What do you, what could someone do? Because you had this really, inter- you, you gave me, told me this little interesting thing that I never really thought about. And it really comes down that today, what happens today is tomorrow's history. Mm-hmm. What is it that one could do to support the museum in, in your um, venture to, to acquire and curate artifacts? Oh, Absolutely. One of the things I always say is look in your attics, talk to your family members. There may be things that you have that you're not even thinking about that could be artifacts. That is there something that relates to your grandmother or grandfather that for us relates to African-American history or a movement or a protest? Did someone in your family go to the March on Washington? If you have something like that, we're interested in seeing it. And also, even if you're not interested in in donating something right away, we can always uh, scan things, take photographs. We can figure out, we have figured out a way to do donations in a contactless way. Uh, But we are very interested in what you have. You can also support us by coming to our programs. We would love to have you sign up for virtual programs. And then also, if you see something on our website, an artifact or something like our Moss Kendricks collection that needs conservation help, if you'd like to donate funds to go to that collection because we are trying to salvage that collection that belonged to African-American PR executive Moss Kendricks, who changed the way African-Americans were represented in the media. He challenged white corporate America to look at African-Americans with equality. So it's a really important collection. We have a lecture coming up next week about it. Uh, So we hope that you would join us in many different ways. Visit our African-American Heritage Park. Walk around Alexandria, see some of our new markers. And we have new markers that are coming in all the time. So explore the city. And uh, Alexandria is a great place to live and a great place to visit. And we're on the water. So we invite you to come over and hang out with us. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm sure that... um, 
I my my father was that borderline hoarder, uh, and I'm <laughs> unfortunately I don't think that we did it do justice. And I'm I know that my father had all kinds of artifacts that if we had looked at it through your eyes and your lens at that point in time, I'm sure there were things that would have been a part of his history and a part of time an artifact of a time that we just didn't think much of that was probably very meaningful. So uh, the rest of us can now follow your great lead. Oh. So Gina, I now pitch it over to you. Okay. So, you know, in this, in this day and age, every, everybody has like some sort of um, spirit animal. And then you might say that I really identify with the um, great American um, finch because she's beautiful and a little bit snowy. And sometimes she has purple feathers. Sometimes she has beautiful indigo feathers. Sometimes she's, you know, she always changes colors depending on where she is. If you can identify yourself as one ingredient one spirit ingredient that says either in your cooking or cocktails, what would it be and why? Hmm. Spirit ingredient. Um, I think because uh, we talked about spice, I like different spices. So I like experimenting. I don't know if there's one in particular, but also sometimes I find it's you, a lot of people are very dedicated to say one particular hot sauce, one particular brand, uh, because it's hard to find a good one that you like that will work in all of your cooking. So I think something like that or a really good, I don't know if I have a favorite hot pepper, but I, I do like spice in food. I don't like anything bland. So I think anything that adds spice for me is great. So A little bit of heat. A little I like bit of it. heat. I think a little bit of heat. Uh, <laughs> subtle is nice sometimes, but I think a little bit of heat and uh, wakes up your senses and in this time where we're all going through the same kind of day in, day out, you need a little spice in your life to make it different, to make it seem like we're, we're not on a hamster wheel every day. So. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> so I can't wait to have a cocktail with you, Audrey, when this is all done and we're, we're back to a space that we can be together and just, I could talk to you all day long. Oh, I could uh, talk to you too. Come over to Alexandria and I'll treat you up for drinks at some of our restaurants here. Or we could meet at Gina's place. We could do both. We could, uh, we could yes. do both. Yes. Absolutely. I'm down. Yes. Yes. We've got right. to support our restaurants and bars and everything. So we've Absolutely. got to support our businesses. So. Thank Very you. Very true. Yeah. Cheers to Audrey. Thank you Cheers, so much Audrey. for being such Thank an you. amazing Thank guest. <laughs> Take care and be well and be safe. Be well. Same. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Links League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.